My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Scott Jackson. The labour movement in Canada may not have experienced the same precipitous drop in union density as has happened south of the border in recent decades, but the signs are not positive. Attacks at the political level and employer resistance at the workplace level are more frequent and intense now in this country than they have been in decades. Part-time, precarious, low-wage work in hard-to-organize settings is on the rise. The manufacturing sector, home to the largest and most powerful private sector unions, has been in clear decline overall and has also become more difficult to organize. As a consequence of all of this, many voices within the labor movement and from broader social movements have been calling for years for a rethinking, a reorientation, a renewal in the labor movement. There is, as of yet, no consensus on what that should look like. But District 78 of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers has, for the last five years or so, been doing its best to embody one kind of response. Formerly focused primarily on large manufacturing workplaces, the machinists have made a deliberate choice to respond to change circumstances by putting their energy into organizing smaller workplaces in non-traditional sectors. And they have been having some success. Jackson is the lead organizer for the district, and he speaks with me about changes in the economic and political environment and in the labor movement, and about how his union has been working to respond to them. I spoke with him via Skype to phone from southern Ontario. My name is Scott Jackson. I'm lead organizer for District 78 of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Their office is in Toronto, but we represent uh, workers all over, for the most part, southern Ontario. We represent any members that would fall into the provincial sector. So for the most part, historically, that has been people who would have worked in manufacturing, including aerospace manufacturing. I myself was a certified machinist and worked at an aerospace place for about 20 years. I did the steward, chief steward, and whatnot, handling grievances and negotiations for my own factory. As well, I was uh, interested in organizing and helped to organize a couple places when I was in the factory. And so when a position became available, the international asked me if I'd like to get into District 78 and do some organizing. So I've been doing that here for about the last 12 years. Mostly at that time, what we represented was manufacturing, I mean, whether it was automotive, aerospace, people who make beer cans, you know, all sorts of things. A little bit in the service sector in that we represented people who would go and fix the way scales. It didn't matter whether they were truck way scales at the Ministry of Transportation or whether they were way scales in grocery stores. And the same thing, you know, air conditioning and things that may be in buildings, building maintenance sort of thing, I guess. So historically, that's who we represented. So like I say, I've been doing this for about 12 years, and for the first, you know, half of my career, I guess, organizing, that was who we concentrated on organizing. During those first few years, we would always get calls from smaller groups about wanting to join the union, and and for the most part, we didn't look at those guys. But as the years went by, and we kept getting calls, and, and in fact, we would get referrals from other unions. I guess if they got a call and they didn't fit in with them, they'd say, well, you know, 
try calling the IAM, and we would get a call from them. And if it was a small group or something that we traditionally didn't look at, we couldn't help them out. So about four or five years ago, we took the opportunity, I guess, to say, listen, we're getting these calls. We're a union. We're here to help people. It shouldn't matter how big the place is or what they do kind of thing. So we took the position that we would try to help these guys in these other industries out. We identified a couple of sectors, specifically three of them, auto dealerships, some of the smaller hotels, and in healthcare. For the last five years, we've been helping those guys out as well as the traditional stuff. I guess for the most part, it was a philosophical thing that these guys are looking for help and nobody's helping them. It was the right thing to do. I mean, that's what unions are supposedly here to do is to help people in the workplace. And these people weren't getting help from anywhere. And so we said, okay, well, let's try to help them. Of course, there was financial considerations and things about that to look at as well. So we had to make some internal changes in the union. One of them was that we, I don't know how familiar you are with the locals, but Generally, if it's a large factory or or whatever, you would set up a local for each one of those large factories. And they, for the most part, they handle their grievances and they handle their arbitrations and participate in different things. What we had to do was, so if you look at smaller hotels, for instance, they're located all across southern Ontario. What we did was we set up a local to look after those hotels. So all the hotels right across southern Ontario, didn't matter what the geographic location was, they all belonged to local lodge 1295. The other thing was traditionally unions paid dues based on their hourly rate. So maybe it's two hours pay per month kind of thing. We had to look at something different because a lot of these people were part-time they may only work one or two days a month or something like that. So what we looked at was so their dues could work on a percentage base. So it wasn't about you know enriching the unions per se. It was helping these guys. But obviously there has to be some sort of a dues payment. So when they do have negotiations, we pay the wages of the people who are doing negotiations. If there is an arbitration, we have legal expenses and those kinds of things, eh? And was part of the reasoning for the change in focus connected to the way that the manufacturing sector has changed? Absolutely. Manufacturing has changed in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's been a large reduction in how much manufacturing is done in southern Ontario. The other thing is there's the willingness of manufacturing to relocate to Mexico or wherever the case might be. So workers in those areas are a little more wary of becoming unionized because they're afraid that perhaps the employer will move. Truth be told, employers put that right out there. Look, look at, you know, you guys think about getting a union. You want to bring a union in here? Uh, we may very well move the company and you guys will be out of a job. So, you know, make sure you think long and hard about it. So, absolutely, our traditional membership in manufacturing and whatnot is definitely a little harder to organize these days. I mean, it's not impossible. We still do organize those people. But, yeah, that was part of our consideration, yeah. How did you decide on those particular sectors, the auto dealer, the smaller hotels, the healthcare, as the ones that you would particularly focus on? We had to start somewhere. When we're looking at new workers, part-time workers, low-paid workers, we had to start somewhere. We had to identify some places where 
we could help guys out and I guess sort of make a trial run at this. So if there was four workers at the local subway shop who said we want to get unionized, we're not ready to just go out there and organize everybody right now. What we said was, okay, so let's identify two or three places where we think we have the expertise and the wherewithal to help these guys. There's no sense organizing, like I said, a subway shop or something like that if we don't think that we can actually make a difference in their life. So those were areas that other unions as well as ourselves have been in on a larger scale. You know, for the most part, the downtown hotels in Toronto that have six, 700 employees, they are unionized. But it was all these other ones with 10, 20, 30 employees that nobody seemed to be helping. That's where we were getting some phone calls from and some referrals from. And it was the same sort of thing with some of the smaller health care units that the larger unions who traditionally represented those groups didn't want to help these smaller groups because they didn't feel it was financially viable to do. They would spend more money on the group than what they would bring in sort of thing, eh? Right now, with the privatization of healthcare in Ontario, there's all kinds of smaller groups. There's smaller laboratories. One of the latest ones that we looked at that we actually organized was a courier service for healthcare. So what they would do is they would go to the different hospitals and doctor's offices and pick up tissue samples and whatnot, and they actually deliver them to the Ontario Laboratory Services, which is a branch of the government. So I guess the government privatized that aspect of it, and you know there's 14 employees who are doing that in the GTA, and they asked for our assistance, and that's what we gave them. There's also smaller retirement homes and things like that, but I don't think that we're exclusively doing that. I believe there's a lot of unions that are looking at those kind of places. Tell me about the process of organizing. Tell me in general, but also highlight how doing it in a smaller workplace, in the kinds of workplaces that you do it now, is different than organizing a big plant. Organizing a big plant, I mean, obviously it takes a lot more time and a lot more effort and a lot more finances to organize a large place. And just so you know, in the provincial sector in Ontario, what has to happen is at least 40% of the people in a workplace need to sign cards indicating that they're interested in joining a union. If we get at least 40%, we generally try to get a few more than that, and we apply to the Ontario Labor Relations Board. The Labor Relations Board would then order that a vote take place, and the vote's always one week after the application. Leading up to that vote, the employer knows that there's a vote coming, and quite often they will have anti-union campaigns, you know, that, listen, we've always been good to you guys, you don't need a union, that kind of stuff, as well as the threats that, you know, if the union comes in here, who knows, maybe we'll move or something like that. If it's a larger workplace, sometimes that isn't so blatant, I guess, because a lot of the larger international companies, they do work with unions, they have unions, and they work with unions, and they know that working with unions can actually be something that is good for the company, provide some structure to the company and how things work. So a lot of times the larger companies, they don't fight so hard. The smaller companies, on the other hand, if you look at a small automotive dealership, quite often the owner may work there or he stops in there from time to time and he knows the employees. And sometimes when the employees decide that perhaps they do want to look at a union, I think the owner of that place becomes very, uh, he takes it very personal sometimes and fights it quite a bit harder and more aggressively than some of the larger places as well because they don't have the human resources departments and things like that. They quite often overstep the law and, and make threats that are clearly outside of the law. Employers fire employees. They threaten to fire employees. 
sometimes they will promise employees, you know, okay, I, you know, I didn't realize there was a problem here. We're going to give you all raises if you vote the uh, union out. Um, we'll, you know, we'll increase benefits. We'll give you the pension plan. They make all the promises in the world. Of, of course, nine times out of ten, if the employees do change their mind and vote, you know, let's give the employer one more time. Nine times out of ten, what, you know, the union's gone, then what happens is nothing changes, and in fact, sometimes it gets worse, and they find reasons to fire those employees over the next little while. So that's what I always say to these guys, you know, if we're going to do this, you got to make sure that you do stand up and, and see it through. Just a little while ago, we organized a smaller hotel in the Toronto area. Some of the workers were new Canadians and had only been in the country for a small number of years. And the employer actually threatened them with deportations, which is you know, very upsetting. I mean, they'll threaten anything they can if they think it'll get the union to not succeed. So what we do is we make sure that we sit down with every employee, talk to every employee and say, listen, this is what the union can do for you. This is what we can't do for you. You know, be honest with them about what the limitations that we can and can't do for them. The other thing is, though, we let them know that this storm is coming from the employer. They are going to have group meetings with you. They are going to have individual meetings with you. They are going to threaten you. They are going to promise you uh, things. But, you know, you know your employer. You've worked there for a number of years. You know him. You know he's going to promise and threaten and whatever. And, and as long as you guys make your decision, and you got to stick through it and see it through. And we just kind of hold their hand through that week. When the employer does come out with, you know, they'll say outrageous items like, you know, the IEM charges initiation fees of $500 and stuff like that. We have to sit down with the employees and say, you know, that's just not true. There is no initiation fees. And outrageous statements like those kinds of things, you know, that you won't have the opportunity to come in and talk to the boss one-on-one -on -one anymore. Everything has to go through the union. And again, we have to make sure that the employees know that that sort of stuff just isn't true. So in a lot of ways, the smaller places are a lot harder to organize. But what we've found is if it is a smaller group and you get the majority of them on side, they do all know each other. If they make a decision to stick together and see this through, quite often that's what they'll do. That's the secret of organizing a smaller group is to have them, you know, because they all know each other, they kind of make a commitment. Listen, you know, I've got your back. We're going to stick together. We're going to see this through and try to make it a better workplace for everybody. Have you noticed a change in employer attitudes over time? I mean, just there seems to be a lot more anti-union stuff in the air today than there might have been a dozen years ago when you started organizing, at least at the political level. Does that show up at the shop floor level? Yeah, it absolutely shows up. I think the employers are much more aggressive today in their anti-union stance. A few years ago, it was very rare that anyone got in trouble for wanting a union or talking about a union. And quite often now, that's just not the case. People are disciplined and threatened and coerced and that kind of stuff. There's anti-union law firms from the states who are doing business in Canada now that you've never seen before, and they have these packages all ready to go, you know, all the anti-union propaganda. As soon as there's an application put in, the employer makes a phone call, and these anti-union lawyers have all the papers and program and the meeting notes all laid out. We just did a group down in Trenton there a few weeks ago, and it was an employer that's based in the U.S., and they actually had a PowerPoint presentation ready the next day, flew people in from the States and went through it all with them. So, so yeah, it's much more uh, anti-union today than it used to be. Are there some specific changes that you would like to see in labor law? 
Well, I, I mean, certainly labor has its wish list of how it would be easier to help people get into unions. I know uh, one of the things is it used to be that for a time there in the 90s, if people signed a union card indicating that you wanted a union, that was good enough. You didn't have to go to a vote. You didn't have to put up with a week of the boss threatening your job and threatening your livelihood. Because if more than half of you signed a card saying, yeah, we want the union, then the union was automatically certified by the government. I mean, it would be great if we could go back to that. But I think it's just as important that the employers have got to be taken to task for their blatant disregard for the law. I mean, they can fire people, threaten people uh, with virtually anything, and there really is no recourse that these people who work there have. I mean, yeah, maybe we can get them their job back if we can prove that that's what uh, they were fired for. If the employer was to do other things, you know, threaten them or whatever, and we can go to the labor board and we can ask for a cease and desist and those kinds of things. But because the votes in one week, that vote has already taken place. The damage has already been done. There really is no, you know, if employers do those sorts of things, then I believe that the group should be automatically certified and they should have to sit down and bargain with the employees. But uh, that's not the case today. So, yeah, I, I guess the government should uphold the law that it's already got there, and I believe that if someone signs a card indicating that they want to join a union, I, I, I don't see any difference than that. You know, if you sign a contract that you're interested in buying a car, you know, that's what your intent, and the employer shouldn't be allowed to coerce and intimidate the employees for a week into changing their mind. When you started organizing smaller workplaces, what did you learn about organizing that you hadn't learned when you were focusing on larger workplaces? I think a lot of it is the big difference that you can make in individuals' lives. So remember, unions have been in manufacturing, representing manufacturing workers for, you know, 100 years or more. So the standard for manufacturing, even in non-union workplaces, you know, in order to keep the union out, it's up there a little bit so that if you work in manufacturing, for the most part, you can pay your rent and feed your kids. But a lot of these smaller places, they pay minimum wage. They have no benefits whatsoever. If you're sick a day, there's no safety net for it. And a lot of these people, especially part-timers, they have no access to employment insurance because they're not laid off like you are in manufacturing. It's just that they're not called in. So they don't have access to a lot of the social safety net. Same thing with workers' compensation. Manufacturing, everybody's covered by workers' compensation. A lot of these smaller employers, they're allowed to opt out of it. And so if they hurt themselves at work, again, they don't have that social safety net. So I think it makes a much bigger difference in these people's lives if, you, if they do get a union and you can get access to someone who can assist you in those areas as well as you know negotiate higher wages and some benefits or better benefits. So a lot of the larger employers can afford to set up a pension plan or an RRSP plan. Now, a lot of that's reducing these days. But smaller employers, they just don't have the wherewithal to do that. Most unions have pension plans as well as benefit plans from the union itself. Okay, we set those up and we put all our smaller employers in it. And in that way, it's like buying in bulk. We can get them a better deal on benefits and provide them with a pension plan, whereas if these people are without unions, they're never going to get those things. Eh? So it makes a real difference in some of these guys' lives. Of the many different things that unions can bring to workers, what do you think are the key ones that really attract the workers that you're organizing now? I think it's fairness. In a lot of cases, it isn't the wages, it isn't the benefits, it's just the fact that they want to be treated fairly. If it's a hotel where 
or whatever it is where you're part-time and you're called into work and you've worked there for three or four years and all of a sudden there's a new employee and that woman's getting all the hours and you're not, it creates a sense of unfairness to these people. That's a lot of times when we'll get the call. By the same token, yeah, sure they want benefits and sure they want a better wage. And again, it's only fair. You're working to pay your rent and feed your kids. And if you're working at minimum wage, you just can't do that. Eh? Uh, they want to be treated fairly. They want to be treated with respect. And that's the basis of it all. And you mentioned that one of the workplaces that you organized recently, a lot of the workers there were new Canadians. And just from what I know in general, the profile of folks who work in big manufacturing workplaces tends to be different than the folks who end up in the more precarious, smaller workplace kinds of things. So is this new focus of organizing changing the profile of your union? Absolutely. That's a good point. Traditionally, the IAM, like we say, manufacturing and whatnot, so the profile of the IAM in southern Ontario and everywhere, for that matter, was predominantly male by a wide margin, predominantly white by a wide margin, and predominantly older by a wide margin. But these new groups that we're bringing in, these new workplaces, they're predominantly younger people, they're predominantly people of color, as well as they're mostly female. So it's greatly changing the look of the IAM. But it's also bringing a lot of, because it's bringing in some different people, it's also bringing in some different and new ideas, I think, that's helping to put some new blood into the union, you know, some new ideas about how we do things. So I think it's good for the labor movement, and specifically it's good for the IAM. Now, I think you said in one of the emails that you sent me that one of the ongoing pieces of work is as more of the people in your district end up being from these smaller workplaces that there needs to be some further changes to the structure of how the districts organize in order to fully accommodate that. Can you tell me a bit about what you meant by that? Like any institutions, you've got your history and you've got your ways of doing things that have served union movement well for many years. I just think that we need to involve more people, more minorities, more women, and uh, more younger people have to get to positions of authority or power, whatever you want to call it, in the union movement so that they can affect the changes that are needed. I mean, it's easy for me to say we need this, that, and the other thing, but, you know, I, I'm I'm one of the traditional union members. I think we need some more of the younger people involved in the upper echelons of the union movement to affect the changes they need. You know, I, I would, like I say, I was at a convention a while back, and the union movement always goes on, you know, that we, we were the people that got health care for the Canadians, were the people that, you know, invented CPP for Canadians, and all those things are true. As well, we invented the weekend. But in actual fact, a lot of younger workers, they don't even get weekends off anymore. You know, people have to work Saturdays. They have to work Sundays. So I, I think it's just a, it's, it's a shift in, in the way that unionized people think about these things. What are some of the key things that you're uh, anticipating in the next six months or a year? Key things in terms of challenges and key things that you hope that you'll be able to accomplish in your organizing work over the next six months or a year? Obviously, the biggest issue with organizing and even working people in general is the neoconservative or neoliberal uh, agenda that's out there right now. I, I mean, Tim Hudak is talking about that even if you belong to a union and you benefit by uh, 
collective bargaining process and you have protection, you know, job protection and everything else that a union affords you, you don't have to belong to the union. And in fact, you don't have to pay union dues. And I think that that all goes toward underfunding unions so that they can't have enough representatives out there that perhaps if people are unjustly disciplined or something, then perhaps we don't have the funds to take them on. And even to point out the problems with the neoliberal uh, agenda that's out there. Uh, Stephen Harper is doing the same thing with regard to politics in the federal sector. They've put forward uh, the same sort of legislation. They're trying to take away federal employees' right to refuse unsafe work. They're looking at making unions report any expenses over $5,000. They're going at it through the Income Tax Act that we have to do more reporting than what you know businesses or other charitable organizations do. Again, is in order to cost the unions more money um, so that we don't have the funds to take on the employers and to take on the government where what they're doing isn't right. We have, a, I, I mentioned earlier that we have a lot of members in Air Canada They've been taking pay cuts and other take-backs for years and years and years. The year before last, they said, you know, enough's enough. We, you know, we want a decent contract, and if we don't get it, we're willing to go on strike for it. Before they even had the chance to walk out the door, Harper and the Conservatives legislated them back to work and said, this is the deal that you're going to get. So a lot of working people, even, the, even when you're unionized, the government is taking away the rights that you have for collective action. And I think that that's the biggest thing facing organizing and labor in general right now is the neoliberal uh, agenda out there to, to try to smash unions, I think, so that we can't point out the unfairness of some of the conservative policies. What are some of the approaches that your district takes to engaging your members in some of those conversations about those key issues? So the IAM belongs with other unions to the Canadian Labour Congress, and there's been an ad campaign, I don't know if you've seen, that's been on TV for the last couple of months, just saying that you know unions do stand up for fairness as well. We've been talking one-on-one with the members, trying to educate them about what that neoliberal agenda is and how it may impact them next time they go to the bargaining table to try to negotiate a decent package. So we've done one-on-one in the general labour movement. We're doing the advertising. Even in our offices and stuff, we put up monitors or TV screens so when people are uh, in the waiting area or, or in the union hall waiting for a meeting to start, there's little educationals, I guess, or short videos that are playing to make people aware of what the Harpers and the Hudaks of this world are trying to do. So um, in a nutshell, we're trying to educate our members a little bit about what some of this stuff is. If you look at Harper, they bury this stuff in big bills so that hopefully nobody sees it. But I think if we can let people know what's actually in some of those bills, I think people you know, won't like it and will hopefully make that known to their MPs and MPPs. No, I just got to go back to that, you know, unions are here to help working people and, and whether you work in a big workplace or a small workplace, that should be what, what we're here to help is, is to help working people get a better deal. And if that means looking at smaller workplaces or untraditional workplaces or service sectors, then that's what we need to do. And that's certainly what District 78 is trying to do. You have been listening to my interview with Scott Jackson, the lead organizer of District 78 of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. To learn more about their work, go to iamdl78.org. That's iamdl78.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.